if someone will not get counseling, they refuse to do it or they can't do it, you don't deprive them of MAT. The harm reduction, in my opinion, is whenever whenever they use, whenever they go out, bring them back in. Sometimes it's necessary, but it's certainly not desired to house people in jail or prison just because of addiction. It'd be way better off for the community, for the taxpayers, if they could get out and start getting on their life. If I tell somebody why smoking is dangerous or opiates are dangerous or donuts are dangerous, that people would stop smoking, using opiates and eating donuts. But that's not the way we change. Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, podcast produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Stephan. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community healthcare, the welfare you and me. episode. So Raise the Bottom buys nasal Narcan and we give it out to all of our new patients when they first come in. We heard from Brenda Hoyt, nurse practitioner at Raise the Bottom in Boise, who presented a lecture on harm reduction. And we educate them on use and we have patients that have come back and months later and said, well, I had to use this on somebody. Can I get another one? We also got a chance to talk with Shelly Hitt, CDH Program Coordinator for the Valley County Opioid Response Project, and Courtney Boyce, CDH Health Education Specialist Senior and Coordinator of the Drug Overdose Prevention Program. Between Ada, Boise Valley, and Elmore County, uh, Valley County has the highest drug overdose mortality rate. On today's episode, we've got a special guest joining us. We're going to be talking with Barbara Norton, LMSW and Program Director for the Change Clinic in Donnelly, Idaho. Barbara is going to be discussing some of the services the Change Clinic offers and explaining some of the techniques involved in helping people who have a substance use disorder seek treatment, as well as barriers clients face in getting access to treatment. But before we get to that, we're going to be hearing a lecture from Deb Thomas, Certified Alcohol and Drug Counselor, licensed professional counselor, and CEO of the Walker Center in Gooding, Idaho. Deb is going to be presenting a lecture on motivational interviewing, discussing how to talk about change to people who are living with a substance use disorder and are active in the recovery process. Echo Idaho, you can earn CE credit while you sit. Without further ado, here's Deb Thomas of Gooding's The Walker Center. When I thought about this, I wanted to give a quick overview. I wanted to give some skill set examples and some resources to you. Um, And what I want everyone to understand is that motivational interviewing is a um, conversational style. Um, To really be good at it, you have to practice it. You need to have other people observe you, give you feedback, because it's a really multi-dimensional process. Um, It's something that I've personally been studying for, you know, 20 years before it was even cool and nobody really understood what it was. Um, And the way I like to talk about it is each one of us in our role is dancing with addiction. And depending on your own personal style, there and your own resiliency that day, you could find that you are irritated, agitated, want to get through your to-do list quickly, and you can have judgmentalism happening, and you can repel people away um, by who you are as a practitioner. Other days, you may be the most nurturing, loving, and fall on the codependency side where you're working harder than the person that's there. Um, And those are all natural dynamics that happen to all of us as providers in any role that we're in. Um, So the idea behind motivational interviewing is to help us understand that we're trying to strengthen that person's own motivation and own commitment because we know that people are persuaded by their own reasons for things to happen instead of all of us wagging our finger at them saying this is better and you should do this Um, because we just become their mother, their 
authority figure, their boss, and um, that, that in itself repels us away. Um, so motivational interviewing, the spirit of this is you collaborate, you evoke a spirit of um, what's happening, and you are giving the client their own autonomy. You're not confronting, you're not um, the authority figure that's providing them education right and wrong um, in a um, downward approach to the person. So what are the keys to changing? It's multi-dynamic. You're trying to influence their social interactions. You're trying to influence um, more of the process than the actual outcome. So it becomes a circular dynamic that you're doing with the person um, where you're trying to determine are, there, are they ready to change, are they willing to change, and are they able to change? And those three things are very different. Um, you know, somebody can be completely ready to change and have no skills at all to be able to change. Um, and we might be talking to them about things they need to do to change um, without giving any skills. So to be able to pull them into this multi-dynamic approach, the key factor that I have always found is you need to express empathy to the person communicating respect for that person no matter where they're at. The non-judgmentalism and the collaborative approach keeps people coming back while they're building their readiness to change, building skills. Um, the other thing that really is important for motivational interviewing is developing that discrepancy. People can be ambivalent. Um, you know, Amy shared the person that, you know, got arrested, ends up in a coma, and the very next day is out using. Um, that person doesn't have any skills to not use. So we can't be mad at that person of, you know, why are they being so self-destructive? Well, they don't know anything better. So um, being able to focus our attention on the current situation and then providing hope to that particular person, like, I hope that you come because I hope that you understand that there are things like medication-assisted therapy that will help you while you're getting ready. Um, other key factors to motivational interviewing is being able to roll with the resistance. And this is where I talk to people about dancing with the addiction. Um, we do not argue with our clients and tell them why things should be better. And from a healthcare provider, whether you're a doctor or a pharmacist, we think education alone, if I tell somebody why smoking is dangerous or opiates are dangerous um, or donuts are dangerous, that people would stop smoking, using opiates and eating donuts. But that's not the way we change. Um, so just doing a power struggle of pounding education into somebody um, causes more resistance versus being able to know are they ready and at what point are they ready to hear information. Um, and then the last part that I want to share with you is supporting that person's own self-efficacy, recognizing that their strengths will be the things that bring change to happen. You have to come up with ways to find the smallest victory, the slightest little um, strength if they don't see it themselves, and begin to work on those baby steps. Um, and you as the provider, the prescriber, the caregiver, the um, front office staff, we have to ooze a belief that people are capable of changing and that they have the capacity to reach their goals because that's the autonomy. It's their goal, not our goal. Um, that will allow us to keep them coming back to us while we can help them identify what's the next goal that might be useful for them and where our education comes into play. So if I can offer anything about a skill set, if you haven't already learned the stages of change and how to identify what the readiness is for somebody, um, that would be helpful because the language that you use with a person is directly related to what stage of change that they're in. Um, 
And we sometimes falsely think, oh, a person came in and made an appointment for Matt, or somebody came in to make an appointment with a counselor. So they're in the action stage of change because they made an appointment and they showed up. They're ready to take steps. Um, that's really not the truth in most cases um, because of that external motivation that people come in because others are influencing them. So being able to see that pre-contemplation, they're really not ready to change. They're not willing um, to change. And they're not even considering change yet. They're just like, oh, I want to get out of legal trouble. So I'm here. Um, contemplation is they're saying, okay, I'm acknowledging there's, there's a problem, but maybe I don't even know that there's a possibility yet for change. They're ambivalent. They're uncertain. Preparation is maybe where we see people at, even when they're ready with the treatment provider and they're showing up for a prescriber, they're really in the preparation. They might say, I'm ready to commit to change, but they need to know what does change look like? What does it look like tomorrow? What does it look like later this afternoon? So that they can plan for the very near future of what to do. And then you can learn more about action stages and maintenance stages. So what's the role of you as a provider in the change process? Um, really understand that one approach does not work for everyone. You have to be resilient um, above anything else. I talk with my um, team as you have to ooze that they're able to change. You have to ooze in every or your body language, your eye contact, your words, that you believe that the person can be successful. Um, and we talk about that as the hopefulness drug because anybody that's been in the, the grasp of addiction, there are so many dynamics that they have their own script in their head about how they've always disappointed people. They're always not going to be able to be successful. So we have to counteract that with our language and motivational interviewing that you are capable of changing. The other thing that we really have to make sure that we do is to listen for that language that the client says we're going too fast. Many of us as prescribers, um, as clinicians, we want that person to change. We know and we get excited by seeing people change. And we set them up for failure because our treatment plan or our map for them is faster than they can. So listen for things that are patient resistance that'll tell you to slow down. Um, and there's really four big areas that people tell you. One way is they start to argue with you. They will challenge the accuracy of what you're saying. Um, you know, as a prescriber, they might say, no, 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 that one, that one is not going to work. It's got to be two. Um, they'll discount your expertise by starting to question over you, or they will directly be hostile. All of those clues are you went faster than they could absorb the hopefulness, the knowledge, and the willingness to change. Other ways that they will tell you that you're going too fast is they will interrupt. They'll start to talk over you. They'll cut you off. Um, and we could probably each look back to our own lives in a time where like, whoa, slow down. But we have language to say that oftentimes or sometimes. Um, the other way they tell us that they're um, resisting how fast we're moving is they start to deny. And that can look like blaming other people, excuse making, minimizing things. Um, resistance about the advice that you're giving or the information that you're giving. They'll deny that you need to talk about depression or they'll deny that you need to talk about side effects possibly um, because they don't even know what's a side effect, much less that they might have one. And then flat out ignoring um, the inattention where you're trying to be very specific and ask questions to get details so you can educate and get the best care plan together for them. And they will do um, you know, looking out the window, they'll start talking about their dog, they will do non-answers, um, or that sidetrack circular talk. Each one of those is a great tool for you to know that you went faster than they could hear. And again, why do they do that is because, you know, what they've learned is that they're not powerful, they're not competent, and that they're failures. And our own inertia is what keeps each one of us stuck. And the disease of addiction compounded by depression and anxiety and compounded by socioeconomic issues and compounded by educational issues, all of that leads them to believe 
Um, I'm going to disappoint people. Why even try? I can't stick with this anyhow. So why try? It's not going to work for me. So why try? Um, or it's like, well, it's not as bad as so-and-so, or I can wait till tomorrow. A little bit more is not going to hurt. Um, all of those are the things that keep people stuck. So what do we need to do? The key questions and the conversation that you're doing with your particular person in front of you is what do you think you will do to change? That's the type of conversational language where you're putting the authority back with them and the autonomy with them. Um, it must be uncomfortable right now. What do you think the next step might be? If they're completely in left field, but they come up with an idea, you then can build upon that particular idea versus the person that has no idea whatsoever. Um, and then if they start talking about planning to do something, well, how are you going to do that? And when are you gonna do that? All very open-ended, slow conversational questions. Um, if they're going to say, I'm ready to make a change, what would some of the good things look like? With always remembering to ask them, what are the reasons not to change? Because we have to acknowledge that we don't want to push them faster than they want to. And one of the ways to keep them aware of preparation for change is to create the ambivalence between what is going well in their use versus what are the fears of unsuccessfulness in the change process. Um, so your language always has to be pulling them towards change instead of pushing them into change. Um, because if you get too close to the edge, they don't want to fall off. So they're going to push back on you and start blaming you that you're, you're wanting them to change or the system's wanting them to change or the spouse or the kids or, you know, all those things that we hear on a day-to-day -day basis. So the skill building, lots and lots of affirmation for a person, um, that general respect and acceptance that they're worthwhile much of our conversation needs to be about what are their abilities, what are their strengths, what are their efforts, um, and then reflections, helping anything that mirrors back to the client what they're saying. Because when you ask somebody, hey, tell me your strengths to be able to change, all of those messages are telling them they can't change. So when you hear something really subtle, then you need to figure that out and sandwich that right back to them 10 times or at least six times. Um, you don't think you have any strengths, but showing up every day is a strength. Um, also summarizing for that person, because we know that their brains are fatigued and not processing information as well as possible. Um, so you listening closely and creating a lot of summaries where you provide back to them what they've said. Um, so I've invited you to collaborate with me. You're showing up. You've shared that one of your strengths is being able to do A, B, or C. And so what I've found in the past is people that feel depressed and hopeless and anxious when they've done one of these things, this is what it looks like for them. So it's, it's a very um, slow, collaborative conversation. I've given you some of the questions just as a, um, a way to help the person if you're trying to get them from preparation to just think about change you can help them with their desire. Like this particular person that went out and used an Amy scenario where they got arrested, they ate their dope, they end up in a coma, um, helping them see like, what would it, what would you like things to look like differently? How would life be different in a month if something looked differently? Um, be really careful about your time frames. If we're talking about, oh, what would you, what would it look like five years from now? way too far out. We talk oftentimes like, what would it look like tomorrow? What would it look like a month from now um, in order to help them change? Questions about how you help them come up with what their abilities are is, what do you think you might be able to change? Um, how, confident are, how confident are you that you could change X? Um, asking them things that bring autonomy in. What seems most possible right now? What's most important to you right now? Because everybody else, what's most important to your mother, your brother, your children, your police officer, your doctor, those are all important things, but none of that's going to help the person change. It has to be what's important for them right now and what's possible for them right now. Um, 
helping them change in the commitment, um, identifying specific things um, that they're willing to do and rating their confidence in doing those. Because I can say it's really, really important to not eat donuts anymore, but I could have zero confidence in my ability not to eat donuts. Um, Or I could say it's really, really important to come to my doctor's appointment, but I have no faith because I rely on somebody to bring me. I don't have any transportation and that person's not reliable. Um, Amy, did you have a question or a thought? Um, I was just going to say on um, affirmations. This is LCSW Amy Jepson speaking. Amy is the executive director of Trivium Life Services in Boise and one of Echo Idaho's standing opioid series panelists. That's what that I find people get stuck on a lot. And so, because so an example is you for us, we have a client that comes in, she's lost her kids to the state, she's failed four or five treatment episodes. Um, and she's like, there's, I don't have a problem that all of you have the problem, um, an affirmation. Cause sometimes people think of affirmations are like, Oh, nice job. And so in those situations, you're like, Hmm, but an affirmation there would be like, wow, it sounds like your kids are really important to you and you'd like to get your kids back. So you focus on that, that I just find that people struggle the most with the affirmation part. Um, mm, thank you. Absolutely. Um, and then some overall things to remind yourself, and I find these very helpful if I have one of those really busy days and I feel like my to-do list is going to push my clients too fast, or I'm feeling like I'm having a crappy day and I don't have any of my own resiliency. Just these are great reminders of, am I having a motivational conversation? Motivational conversations, you are listening more than you're talking over your client and you're waiting to listen to key factors that they share with you and then summarize those back into a strengths, abilities, and a very specific baby step towards change. Um, The other thing I always ask myself is, am I sensitive and open to what their issues are? Am I open to listen to how the systems got their kids and the systems mean to them and police officers are bad and that last doctor was a whatever? Um, Instead of trying to justify and defend the profession or their experience? Am I willing and sensitive to listen? And then exactly like Amy said, listen for the strength in that um, venting, frustration, irritability that my client is sharing. Um, Do I invite the person to talk about and explore what their ideas of change are? Because I have a lot of great ideas in 30 years, but I have a lot of great failures when I try to put my ideas on other people. Um, Do I encourage the person to talk about their reason for not changing? That's that ambivalence that is so powerful because then you find out what the pool is to stay stuck. The pool could be their anxiety and depression. The pool could be that they don't have enough resources and you could then have a really great action plan of connecting them with the case manager or a bus ticket. Um, But if you haven't listened to what the good things are that keep them stuck, because that's what they feel like. Those are good reasons to stay exactly in my drug addiction. Um, So am I really exploring and encouraging them to tell me about their problems? Um, When somebody's irritable, do I ask permission to give feedback? Do I ask, are you ready to hear a suggestion? Um, And then do I keep it simple enough and succinct enough and I don't talk them to death with all my knowledge and experience to where I turn into wah, wah, wah? Do I reassure the person that ambivalence is completely normal? Do I reassure them that I understand that your feelings about the children's protective system is real? There are struggles in that system, but their goal and your goal is the same. They want the best for your children. Um, Do I help this person identify successes? Because when you've been beat down, you can't see your own successes. Do I understand, do I seek to understand the person? Do I summarize what that person um, is hearing? Do I value their opinion more than my own? That can be a challenge for all of us at times. Um, Because we we don't want to be the expert, but we are the expert. And a lot of motivational interviewing is helping that person understand that they are the experts. I use a lot of language with people. You know yourself the best. You know your children the best. You know your strengths the best. You know what's the hardest. Um, I'm here to be a guide and come alongside you as you are navigating that. Um, 
And then the last thing is I want to share with you really succinct a couple of great tools that I use with my clinicians and my um, prescriber. Um, the tip 35 that came from SAMHSA is really powerful. It has charts and graphs and case scenarios and it explains the change, stages of change. You can get it as a great PDF. Um, obviously, the third edition of Motivational Interviewing by Miller um, and Rolnick. And then a great visual kind of infographic process that um, Case Western Reserve put together. They have some great um, things that you can even put up in your office or on the side of your keyboard to help remind you um, of some open-ended questions. They have some tools there. don't have a microphone, so I'm going to read your question for you. This is Echo Idaho's program director speaking, Lachelle Smith. Lachelle often acts as moderator for discussions between Echo lecturers, panelists, and participants. Um, Mark's a nurse practitioner in Lewiston, if I'm not a liar. How much of that do you go through an appointment that is 30 minutes long for medication management? If I was having somebody come in for a 30-minute medication check, um, I would make sure that I genuinely pause, look the person directly in the eye and engage with them. How are you doing this day, this week, this month, you know, whatever gap in time is, how are you doing? What has been going well for you? And then I would pause and say, what are your current struggles? Because I'm assuming that um, if that's the medication, like checkup, if it's the first appointment, uh, and you have a half hour, I would spend some time acknowledging that we are going to be a partnership here. I, as your prescriber, have some expertise in medications and lots of things that can help you, but you are the expertise in knowing where you're at right now in your journey. Um, the more you're able to share with me, um, the more you're comfortable um, ask, answering the questions that I ask you. And then I'm going to make sure that I ask questions that are not intrusive, um, that are exploratory. And that's the language that I share, that I know that you're going to be guarded. That's part of the disease of addiction. Um, it's going to take us time to build a relationship with each other. And that's kind of what I would do in that first session, is really make sure that they know I care. Well, I would add to that using a lot of reflections. Um, I think I think one of the things that happens to me, and and all of us are facing this more and more with healthcare coverage, is everything is getting so time limited. You have 15 minutes, you have 30 minutes, you have 20 minutes, but really you need two hours. Um, and so doing a lot of reflective statements is a way to get there. Wow, so it sounds like you've done well with this, but you're really struggling with that. Um, or Another good question, like Debbie pointed out, that open-ended question is, um, you know, what is it that you would like to accomplish with medication? Mm -hmm. um, so then they have an idea to, they can tell you what their goal is, and then you reflect back to them. So it sounds like what you want to do is have some of this chronic pain stop, or you want to stop having withdrawals, or and you're wondering if medications would help. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and there's something about that that really makes them feel heard and makes them more likely to be less ambivalent about actually going home and taking the medication. And I think the other, absolutely, Amy, thank you very much. Um, the other thing is in 30 minutes, what's really going well? What is your goal behind this medication? But then really pausing in that 30 minutes is what is your biggest struggle right now? So that you're addressing both ends and you're figuring out what that ambivalence is. How else do people sneak in motivational interviewing to short appointment times? Dr. Bridges, what works for you? I think we all struggle with it. Speaking as ECHO participant, Dr. Patrice Burgess, physician in Boise. I don't have as many addiction patients that I see frequently, but I was thinking as, as she was giving her talk um, about folks with diabetes or weight issues, uh, I probably see that a lot more frequently than substance abuse. And sometimes I just have to pick one little thing you know, like she said, like, let's focus on exercise today or, you know, whichever thing and, and um, just take it off in small chunks when I see people every three to six months. And then the next time we, we attack the next thing. 
And one thing that's a, a very entry-level motivational interviewing skill is the very basic skills are walking in, looking the person in the eye, knowing what their name is, introducing, making it a warm environment to, to even start to just shaking their hand. Hey, well, I'm so glad you came in today. Thank you for coming in today. Now let's see if we can figure this that's the, like just a basic thing that you can do in very little time, but it starts the whole conversation off differently than I know this happens to me. I've got two crises in the, in the lobby. I've got three clinicians crying in the hallway because they have questions and you know, you rush in, you're like, uh, and you seem really rushed, but taking that time, taking it step out, say, Hey, you know, my name's Amy. Thank you, Kathy, for coming in today. It's so good to see you. I really appreciate you making time for this appointment mm-hmm. and just, just going from there. It creates a whole different scenario. Is it RJ? Yes. Do you want to remind us who you are and then go ahead and ask your question? Um, I'm the recovery peer program coordinator at the Lake Tower Recovery Center. Great. And then I work with peers. And one question I have is there seems to be some that come in and they don't talk to you. They don't say hi. They're just not engaged at all. How do you get through to something like that? So for me, the conversation looks like this. I understand you don't want to be here today, but I want to share with you that, John, I am so excited that you're here today because um, this appointment is all about you. You know, I'm here to serve you and provide you opportunities to do what you want to do because other than dying, we all have our own autonomy. So I really address that autonomy with the person. And then I'll say something like, so what is the problem that you came for? When they're completely in, in, in denial, they don't want anything. And if they say, you know, my problem is my PO's on my back and I don't want to be here. Okay, so what does a PO being on your back look like? So you have to take drug tests. He's telling you to stop using. Um, I ask them to start exploring what that is. And then I ask them some ambivalent questions. So... What's going to happen if this PO stays on your back? And we might spend five minutes or 20 minutes in a counseling session, you know, talking about how they can be cunning, baffling, manipulative, they can be secretive, they can, you know, work the system. And, and I let them talk about that. I'm like, yeah, I've heard other people do that. That can work for a while. Then I ask them, you know, if in all ideal cases, you could get the PO off your back, what are things that would that mean? Um, and I get them to start And I listened for one little thing, like they just kind of told me that they have a job and they've kind of got high energy and they've got some connections. You know, one thing a PO wants is for you to get a job. So um, then asking them, so is there anything I can do to help you get a job? You know, who are successful in keeping a job? Oh, people that can get to the job on time every day, keep their job. Are you having any troubles getting to your job every day on time? Well, yeah, I use or that. So you just start that let them go. You know, I have a lot of times people, you know, POs on their back or, you know, I've got a wife or a husband problem. I don't have an alcohol or a drug problem. Great. What does that wife or husband problem look like? Tell me about it um, so that you give them the autonomy. That again was a didactic presentation by Deborah Thomas titled Motivational Interviewing. That lecture was recorded live during an ECHO session that took place on June 13th, 2019 as a part of ECHO Idaho's Opioid Addiction and Treatment Series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the ECHO Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck that accompanied that presentation is also available on our website, www.uidaho.edu slash echo. I'd like to transition now to a more recent conversation I had with Barbara Norton, the director of the Change Clinic in Donnelly, Idaho. The Change Clinic is the only medication-assisted treatment provider in Valley County. Barbara spoke to me from her office in Donnelly to discuss some of the barriers to treatment facing Valley County residents with substance and opioid use disorders. Welcome to the program, Barbara. Uh, I was wondering if we could start out with having you introduce yourself to the people who may be listening and um, tell us a little bit about your work. Okay, so my name is Barbara Norton. I'm a licensed master social worker 
We do medication-assisted treatment here or medication for addiction treatment. We're in Donnelly, and um, we've been here going on three years. And and what's the staffing like at, at the Change Clinic? Me? <laughs> Me and my provider. Okay. Uh, she showed up once or twice to four times a month. It depends how uh, who needs help. But she's going to, a lot to telehealth, too. Uh, telemedicine, mm-hmm. uh, meeting with the clients, which is awesome. But then um, I, but they have to meet here with me, usually for this area. And then I do the drug testing and counting of the pills at first, you know, or we do, uh, um, we're, we also do sublocate. Uh, that's the injections, the monthly injections. I'm also okay. a medical assistant. So uh, I do it all right now. And then uh, in the next week or two, I'll be starting groups again. So if we have to have an, an evening group, that's what we have, or an afternoon group. And then we're bringing in telehealth, telemed. So, okay. Uh, when, you, when you say group? It's um, education. It's an evidence-based program uh, that is required by courts. I've been in drug court. I've run in a couple of drug courts. And um, so we do have, an, I have an evidence-based program uh, with that model, you know. So with, um, anyway. What kinds of things are you teaching in that course? First, well, first we go with the stages of change. And then we do, we do several weeks of um, MRT, you know, moral recognition therapy, which probably is one of my favorite, but I use uh ASAM criteria and uh, all the Hazleton uh, a program and also um, change companies, which is uh, all ASAM criteria stuff. So just just for our listeners' sake, um, Donnelly, Idaho is in Valley County, which is defined as a frontier environment, meaning there's fewer than six people per square mile. Um, but this is one of the only places offering medication-assisted treatment in the area. The next closest is in Boise, which is 93 miles, uh, essentially a two-hour drive in a car. Can you tell me about, um, are the folks you treat at the Change Clinic primarily residents of Donnelly, or are you seeing people coming from all over the place? Actually, I have like four of them that come from, uh, from Riggins and Council, yeah, rig- between Riggins and Council and a couple for New Meadows. And just to get geographical here for a second, New Meadows is about 30 miles away from Donnelly. Council is roughly 35 miles. Um, Riggins is about 60 miles north of Donnelly. And so do you have the sense that folks are coming from these places because the Change Clinic is the only provider available in the vicinity? Yes. Yes, it is. This kind of, we're actually, we're the closest uh, to those um, those towns, the small towns. Yeah, and sometimes I do, um, well, I was going about once a week and then a couple then a couple times a month to council to see a couple clients too because you have to have, uh, you know, drug tests and then, and then do their, and we go back and forth. They'll come here a couple times and I'll go there a couple times. But now I've dropped it down to like once or twice a month because we have the telehealth. And um, it's working really well. They're able to work and um, we don't uh, get involved or keep them from being able to work. In a previous episode, we spoke with Skip Clapp, who was telling us about the intersections between people who are living with substance use disorders and are also involved in the justice system. We have maybe two that aren't. Most of, mostly they are. Uh, one of the things Skip was telling us about was that the majority of people who are brought into the court system on substance-related crimes is on the highway from driving. He also talked about how it can be a real barrier for people if they get a DUI and their license gets suspended or revoked, but they're still required to attend a class for supervision or treatment. Um, this turn towards telehealth that you're talking about sounds like it has the potential to help with some of that, but I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about some of the other barriers that people in Valley County with substance use disorders may be facing. The main thing is um, transportation, because if they get in trouble, they usually get caught with a DUI. So that's alcohol. 
And if they did a blood alcohol level on them or, or blood test on them or UA, they would find out there's multiple drugs. Alcohol is what they get because whenever they get them pulled over, so uh, that's what they get caught with. But actually, it's multiple meth. Uh, a lot of them are meth, almost all of marijuana. They don't have a test for that. And then uh, a lot of opioids and um, and a few others that are getting more prevalent. And then also I had, have you heard of uh, crocodile? I have not. Which they don't, many times they don't test. Um, have you heard of spice? Very dangerous, very dangerous drugs. And then they, these are being laced with uh, with worse stuff. Fentanyl is really getting really uh, scary here. But the biggest barrier is actually the appropriate case management or treatment here. Uh, if they have a case manager, I'm a case manager, or I do case management, that's one of the uh, most important things whenever they come in. They need someone working with them so they can work, help them get a job, help them get um, what, you know, their basic needs. And then once that takes a week or two, usually, uh, to try to help them get all that and then start them into treatment and then uh, work around their interviews, stuff like that. You have to help them with that. Because if you're not helping them with their basic needs, mm, yeah, you're not you're not helping them. When you say appropriate case management or treatment, uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? But the treatment that they are receiving here, in my opinion, is inappropriate. It's uh, there's too many. The rate of recidivism is extremely high here. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's something wrong. So even and someone needs to say, hmm, maybe we need to start working on this and give them the appropriate. Uh, because if you can't get them into treatment, they don't have transportation. You can't work around their job. So you need to work around their job. It's difficult for them to get a job in the first place. A lot of them are felons. But there are places here, but it's usually the wrong hours for treatment. You need a couple different groups, uh, two, three, four times a week at different hours. I know five of them. I know five of them personally, and maybe at least five or ten more that can't hold down a job because they have to run in there to test at a certain crazy hour. Their hours for the job, or they have to attend treatment maybe two or three times a day, different hours. You can't hold down a job like that. And they're insisted they won't let them work under the table, but you can't work for cash. Uh, like cutting wood or something. Some of them do not have a, don't even have a high school education. So that's what they do around here. Cut wood, clear off roads, and they can make a, not a real good living, but a, you know, a fairly good living um, if they're living with someone or whatever. Something else we've talked about in some of our echo sessions is just how for some people living with a substance use disorder, it might be the only thing they know. So I imagine it can also be kind of hard to go out looking for help with something that you might not even realize is a disorder or to talk about something with someone you don't know when there's so much stigma and oftentimes shame attached to it that has that hasn't really been unpacked. It takes them a long time to build up any any trust or rapport with anyone. You're just not going to say, here, here's a card, go, go to peer support, which would be awesome. Peer support, you know, like eh, peer support is amazing. I wish I had it. But if they would come here to the office to see, get them up where uh, any time the probation could show, you know, or her medi could show, or somebody, you know, that they're, I mean, in these kind of areas, that's kind of uh, it's too close. You can be in a bigger city and get away with it pretty good, you know, and that's mm -hmm. it. Oh, gosh, that's a good place to go. And everybody goes there. But here, everybody knows everybody. And uh, we all, I mean, they all know the sheriff. They all know the whatever. And they can show up anytime. They don't usually come here. Nobody ever comes here. <laughs> but uh, so it's difficult for most, maybe 99% anyway, for them to go to uh, get help. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the last time we talked to how in a small community, the fact that everyone knows everyone makes it hard for folks to come out about needing help. What's your sense of how the stigma of opioid use or substance use affects people's ability or willingness to get into treatment? Uh, lesser forced. There is, uh, they won't go. 99 times. If they're, if they're not forced, oh, there, there's a one or two that'll show up, you know, I got to have help, but uh, it's maybe just alcohol or something like that, and it has to be real quiet. They do come in, but um, stigma is really, really 
And what's your what's your sense of the best way to start changing the conversation around the stigma? Only somebody better than me at talking <laughs> and that understands, you know, really, I'm serious. I wish I had the gift of gab, but but I don't. Now, I do with clients. It's funny. You know, I, I do because I meet them where they're at and they're safe and I'm safe. You know, it's I mean, we have a rapport going that I meet them where they're at. You got to be that I realize you don't you can't take it personal whenever they screw up or whenever they're conning you. You have to meet them where they're at and you bring them up. That's what you have to help get back in. Um, the echo, you know, echo whenever, um, like some of the doctors talk there, they're amazing. But they'll say harm reduction, harm reduction. The harm reduction, in my opinion, is whenever whenever they use, whenever they go out, bring them back in. Get them back into treat. That To me, that's harm reduction as they build up and... Um, and then they say, hey, there is help. I have a client right now, actually I have two or three clients, they're suicidal, and especially with this, um, this COVID that's going on and all the craziness around it, and nobody knows anything for sure, and everybody's fighting, but my clients like it. They like uh, the masks. They like staying in, and they get worse and worse and worse. More really bad stuff happens at their homes uh, that, that you don't find out here until it's too late. If if they could be if there was someone here that understood that could be an advocate, you know, to get the help. I'm only staying in here for the fight because I it is a fight for me. They're doing things wanting to commit suicide or they're doing some very bad drugs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 curious if I can ask you about um, you know, the the more of these interviews I do the thing I keep hearing things like you're saying about harm reduction and, you know, really being able to meet people where they are and really being able to like not judge them, even if it's somebody who's who's coming in for like the 20th time coming back into recovery. You know, there's some people who would look at that and say like, Oh gosh, like not this guy again. But then there's other people who are like, no, this is amazing. They're back. They're back. They don't They well, you're back again. Why? I have a letter from another uh, person saying that, in fact, she sent it to me and says, well, they're back again, but they're hard, they're worthless and they're no good. And they're, it's just a blah, blah, blah. And we had him and we got him because they wouldn't take it. And then I found out there was a lot of stuff going on in his life. Right then he was in jail. But when we come out, we, we put him immediately into boxing treatment, even though he was meth addict. So they tried to shut us down because we we're given suboxone to meth addicts. It's like, I, you got to be kidding. I mean, he OD'd a couple of times on, on opioids. And the reason he has meth is because that's a, what he can get around here. And a lot of times if there, um, and there is some here, fentanyl, uh, which is opioids, but they don't think of it as opioids. So they'll use meth instead of opioids if they can't get fentanyl or whatever, because It'll, that's a long-lasting um, heroin, isn't it? It's just minutes. They'll go with the fentanyl because you could have a patch of fentanyl last three days. They don't think of that. They don't put that in there. And so they say, well, they're not a heroin addict, so they don't need it. But if you check and see what their history is, oh, boy, it's on beyond just a heroin. Even the, the evaluator will check. It's like you got to go back. you got to talk. And you're just with them for a couple hours. But you got to learn to pick up on this stuff. Well, what do you do? And learn what questions to ask, gently or whatever. You start understanding about the other drugs and about why they're doing this. And it's like, well, now since whenever you find out the real reasons and stuff makes sense. Oh, my gosh. Then you can go uh, and help them treat, give them the correct, appropriate treatment. Is it perfect every time? No, but every time you see them, it's a little better and a little better. And that's where harm reduction, in my opinion, comes in. Just bring it back in, bring it back in. To me, that's harm reduction, not just say, well, instead of slamming heroin uh, three times a day, let's do it uh, three times a week. And that's a good start, but that's not what our goal should be. It should be, okay, get them in, treat them, get them trust, and start working on their basic needs and, and mental health needs and the medication if they need it. And then bring them up. 
So you've got to work, 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 and give them more education, give them more treatment, give them hope. You have to give them hope. And you have to be honest with them. You have to help them. You have to validate them, firm, fair, and consistent. And you have to, val- and don't rush off to the probation officer and tell them what they're doing or whatever. You, but you're honest with them. You have to tell them. Now, if I find out you have, um, and I do, I tell them, I said, now, if you're a danger to yourself or others, off to the ER or to the sheriff's department, you know, you're going. And so we have to work towards getting you not to be a danger to yourself or others. And, um, and then if there's child abuse in the home, we have to work with that. But we'll get you help so you don't lose your kids forever, you know, because they're quiet. And they don't trust you for a few times. Then they start trusting you. Then you can get help for, for them and their kids. Yeah, I mean, all those sound like great strategies and techniques for what I've heard referred to as uh, motivational interviewing. Right, motivational interviewing and strength-based. you got to work with what they call strength-based treatment. That's what we do. It's evidence-based. And um, so you work on their strengths. You find out what they are. Work on their strengths. And then oh, a lot of the bad stuff just kind of dissipates on itself. And whenever you get that kind of um, knowledge then it's much easier. And and then you have to teach them um, relapse. Relapse is an option. You can choose to relapse or not. It's not mandatory. And then you show them why. And if you're going to, uh, then here comes the stages of change again. And then here comes uh, like um, AA teaches, you know, there's three things. There's only three things you have to do um, you know, that you have to change, which is everything. Uh, playmates, playgrounds, and playthings, you know. So, and then we're going to help you. And then you have to teach them there's going to be a, a honeymoon stage. You're going to be good, and we're going to have fun during that stage, and I'm going to have a relief, you know. And then you're going to hit the wall, and you start showing them this is your wall. This is not mandatory. Whenever you learn what you're going to do here, then we can get you over the hump, which AA will call the hump. And usually it's six months, 12 months, uh, 18 months. And whenever you start realizing this stuff, give them the knowledge, give them the information and show them. uh, Changes everything. I'll say, I didn't know that. I just thought that's just the way it was. Um, If you could just say a little bit about what keeps you going in this work, because it is, um, you know, I've heard people talk about how you do have to kind of exude hope for people who really need it probably the kids i had this one the mother came in and she says i've been clean for a week and she's so excited uh so and then she brought her daughter with uh, and going on 11 and we talked there and i love kids i do i have six of my own they're only 13 grandkids it's just disgusting and so when i was zeroing in on the daughter and watching her her mother talk and stuff and her mother's very open too open in front of her and this little girl and and so we were talking and all of a sudden some of the things i was saying to the mother i could see it bring hope to her i think she realized she knows what's going on and she's not talking down or or threatening or anything so what she did while she was there see drew and i do a lot of art therapies too with kids i have in the past lots of art therapy and she drew a couple of things. And of course, she was talking to her mother all the time. She was talking to me. And uh, and then she started talking to me. Her mother just sat there. She was shocked. She says, I've never seen her talk to anyone, you know, uh, oh. especially never the first time, you know. But they're begging for help, these kids. And if you knew what, what, what they were into and nobody understanding, they're just mean kids at school. They're just some troublemakers kids at school no wonder if they could see but nobody at the school is i mean they don't understand but anyway that is yeah. the kids it, it and especially her i still have her two little drawings and then to see a parent uh you know the parents or the grandparents whatever it's just families whenever they see a little hope that somebody's not using it and they're really trying it's um it's miraculous yeah, well, every every resource helps. So, um. yeah. But I got a couple clients now uh, that are really oh, changing big time, and so now I'm getting them involved. It's um, it's exciting. 
then I get a little hope. And so it's just, it's, it's like, ugh, I got to stay. I got to stay. This is a, it's exciting to me to see somebody, you know, show up, visit, want to visit. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And their lives are changing. They're absolutely changing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally life-saving work. So, um, well, thank, thank you so much, Barbara. This has been a great, a great conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for being so kind. That again was an interview with Barbara Norton, LMSW and Director of Programs at the Change Clinic, located at 454 West Roseberry Road, Suite 104 in Donnelly, Idaho, 83615. Information about the Change Clinic's hours of operation and services can be found on their website, www.idthechangeclinic.weebly.com. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by VCorp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. That's about all the time we have for today. But join us next time when we'll be looking at the levels of care and addiction treatment, hearing a presentation from Ladessa Foster, licensed clinical professional counselor and clinical services manager at BPA Health. We'll also be talking with Monica Forbes, CEO of Recovery United and founder of Peer Wellness and The Rock in McCall. That's coming up next time on Something for the Pain. Until then, Idaho, take care of yourself. Free sessions, there's a handful every month. Echo Idaho. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. Well, the East End- Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDI-1 or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Todd Palmer, Barbara Norton, Ian Tresoyer, Skip Clapp, and Deborah Thomas, respectively. Big thanks also to the other contributing voices on today's episode, Lachelle Smith, Amy Jepson, Patrice Burgess, and RJ. And a big thanks to all of our listeners without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Lachelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Program Managers are Carly Klein and Lindsay Winters Jewel. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock, and Sam Steffen. of Idaho faculty address the needs of our state and beyond through their research and scholarly activities. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at U of I. During each show, I talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. For example, I recently spoke to Bert Baumgartner, who is an associate professor in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at the University of Idaho. We discussed the scientific and societal factors that lead to people being vaccine hesitant.
Moderates seem to be the most sensitive to changes in risk. So that's to say, when risk is really low, the moderates behave similarly to conservatives in that not as many of them are willing to get vaccinated compared to Democrats. But as you dial up the risk so that the risk is really, really high, then liberals or Democrats are much more willing to get vaccinated compared to Republicans. And so are the moderates. So the moderates sort of swing the most. They seem to be most sensitive to information about the risk of the disease. If you want to learn more about science and research at the University of Idaho, I hope you'll subscribe to The Vandal Theory on your favorite podcasting platform so you don't miss an episode. You can also visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory to learn more about the podcast. I'm Lee Cooper, and I hope you will be joining me on The Vandal Theory. 